Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and from the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, I've talked about it before, but one of my first sermons ever as a pastor, technically I was still a vicar, a pastoral intern, uh, was on the topic of giving versus greed. And I wanted in that message to present kind of a, a general idea of how society viewed those concepts, so I went to that most scholarly of resources, Yahoo Answers. Um, <laughs> And I asked the question on there, what has more impact in this world, giving or greed? And there were all number of answers, a pretty good cross-section of society. Um, but the one that really stood out to me was somebody who responded something, something to the effect of, while greed tends to rule our society, uh, giving arguably has a greater impact. Because while greed kind of establishes how the world goes, giving has the opportunity to change someone's world. And I think just that, that one little concept as we look at today's readings kind of rings in my ears. And so that's kind of the direction we're gonna be going today. But before we go into that, let's go to God in prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for this chance that we can come together, whether here in this room or online to worship you. Lord, we thank you that we live in an age of technology where people spread across this planet can join together in praise of you. Oh Lord, I thank you for the chance to share your message and I pray, Lord, let it be your message. Let it not be about me or from me. Let it not be the thoughts of my own mind, but let your Holy Spirit be at work in this place. I submit myself to you and I pray that we would all be willing to do the same, that your Holy Spirit would speak to each of us in a powerful way. Open our hearts, open our eyes, to you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Special welcome to those of you joining online. It is great to have you. If you're watching live on Sunday morning via Facebook, go ahead and hit share on that link uh, so that you can invite all those in your feed to church to join you this morning. Now, I gotta confess, sometimes when it comes to the lectionary readings, as I said last week, I don't pick them. Uh, that is, I don't even know who picks them. Somebody uh, gets together and decides, these are the lectionary readings over the course of this three-year turn. That's how it works. Uh, there are some weeks where I'm looking at the three different readings, our Old Testament, our Epistle, and our Gospel, and it's like, you know those, those like murder mystery things where they're looking at all the suspects, and they have the pieces of yarn connecting the pictures? Like, that's sometimes what I'm trying to compare the readings, like, what does this one have to do with this one, and this all kind of comes, not today. Today, it's a straight line. Like, there is a very common theme within our readings today, even if you include our psalm that we read earlier in the service. There's a very common thread that goes through all of them. But before we really dive into that, as I've talked about before, it's important to understand context. If you heard my message last week, we spent a long time talking about the context to which those were written. So let's take a glimpse real quick at context of, we're gonna focus on our three main readings today. Uh, with Starting with that Old Testament, Amos. Uh, Amos was a prophet. He was speaking to a divided kingdom. At his stage within history, uh, the people of God, typically we call them the Israelites, they weren't just the Israelites. They had split as kingdoms. Uh, there were the Israelites and the Judahites. So there was Israel and Judah. They were kind of at odds with each other. There were some, some disagreements. And they kind of had settled their kingdoms. You had, um, you had Israel, which was set in, uh, in Samaria, actually, on the Mount Samaria. So when we see at the beginning of Amos chapter, uh, excuse me, Amos chapter 6, um, that we see he references the Mount 
Zion and Mount Samaria. Samaria refers to Israel, while Zion is Jerusalem, that is the southern kingdom of Judah, which is actually where Amos was from. He was from the southern kingdom of Judah, and yet he had the responsibility to be a prophet to both kingdoms. And so he has to speak into their situation. Now, at this particular time, both kingdoms had been going through a period of peace, a period of prosperity. Things had been going well. And so in our reading, we see that basically Amos is saying, hey guys, you've been in this period of peace. You've been in this period of prosperity and maybe you're taking it for granted. Maybe you've become a little fat and lazy. Maybe you become a little bit complacent. He specifically is speaking to the leaders, right? He references those who sleep in beds of ivory, who drink wine by the bowlful, right? These are people who are living in opulence and decadence. And he's addressing it, and he actually calls out, he says, look at these other nations, these other places that he references. Those would be nations around them who were recently conquered. And he asks them the question, are you greater than them? Now, the irony is the leaders of Judah and Israel, their answer would be, yeah, yeah, we are greater than them. Because to them, they're thinking we are the people of God. They have no question in their mind that they are the people of God. And thus, God favored them. Centuries later, in Romans chapter 8, it'd be written, uh, God is for us, so who can be against us? So they took this to say, like, we're safe. We're good to go. God's on our side. And that led them to a sense of complacency. Now, in that question that Amos is asking, are you greater than these nations? What he's actually implying is no. He says they have greater lands, they had greater armies, and yet they were conquered. And so Judah and Israel, you, you people of God, you've become complacent, you've become comfortable, you've become, quite frankly, entitled. And you feel like everything is just fine, and he's cautioning them against that. So that's kind of the context we're looking at here in Amos. So then let's look at 1 Timothy. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Last week I looked at 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I had to kind of unpack a lot of context in that because that's a section of Scripture that's often pulled out of context. Uh, the context, for those of you who perhaps missed that, is this is Paul writing to Timothy or perhaps even uh, a student of Paul. We're not really sure if Paul was the actual author. Um, but he's writing to Timothy, young Timothy, uh, who, who actually wasn't all that young, probably mid-20s. Um, and he's writing to Timothy who had been placed in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a well-to-do city. Ephesus had the Temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the world at its core. The core literally of the city, but also the core culturally of the city. Now, Paul had been to Ephesus before, and, and while he was there kind of... Um, like kind of incited a riot. Uh, and so he was familiar with Ephesus and the culture there. And that's still the same context as we look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. He's still speaking into this largely pagan, largely matriarchal um, society, right? Now, again, I'm not the person who picks the lectionary reading, but uh, I find it fascinating that they started with verse 6 because verse 5 is, is crucial for the understanding of this. Um, it's talking about constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived in truth. And here's why. They're imagining that godliness is a means of gain. They're imagining that godliness is a means of gain. He then goes on to the reading that we have, which is now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. Why is that significant? Well, remember that riot that Paul encountered in Ephesus, as recorded in the book of Acts, it was mostly about the fact that he came into this town and was preaching against Artemis. 
He was preaching Jesus as the one true God. And the people who took up issue with that were the silversmiths. The people who were responsible for creating the idols. They're saying, hey, hold on. Uh, if you get rid of this whole Artemis thing, then like, that's our livelihood. So as he's saying, those who see godliness as a means of gain, maybe he's referencing, maybe that's stuck in his craw a little bit. And he's thinking about these people who were seeing religion as a way to accrue more wealth and more money, right? And so he then goes on to say that, that godliness comes from this idea of contentment. Now, contentment is a fascinating concept, especially when we weigh it up against Amos. Because in Amos, he's fighting against what? Complacency. What's the difference between complacency and contentedness? There are many ways the opposite sides of the same coin. And as I kind of thought about this and molded over, I came down to this. They both deal with trust, right? They're both trusting that God is providing, right? If you're content, you're trusting that God is providing. If you're complacent, you're trusting that God is It's The issue is when they're combined with something else. When you're content, you're trusting that God is providing to do what you need to do. There's still a sense of drive, a sense of ambition alongside being content. But complacency is combined with laziness. God is going to provide everything I need, so what does it matter what I do? What does it matter what my mindset is? What does it matter what my action is? I'll just sit back and let God do the work. And so contentedness has ambition and drive, while complacency has laziness alongside of it. So he, he's speaking to this idea of being contented. He actually says the things that you need are food and clothes. Now, we would look and say, well, maybe a little more than that. Like, we need shelter, right? Uh, keep in mind, what was Paul? What was he by trade? A tent maker. So, you know, that helps a smidge. <laughs> so in many ways, he kind of left that part out, right? He, you need food, you need clothes, and you probably need some sort of shelter, or at least somebody nearby who's a tent maker who can literally build you a shelter uh, at any moment, right? And so he's saying that's what you need in life. He goes on to say that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil or the root of all evil, depending on how you look at that translation. Notice the translation there. It actually says the love of money. Oftentimes when we hear it in popular culture, it says what? Money is the root of all evil. That's not what it says. It doesn't say money is the root of all evil. Wealth in and of itself is not wrong. Wealth in and of itself, money itself isn't the problem. The issue, as he points out, is those who are determined to be rich. Now I would challenge you to find somebody who is wealthy and successful in life who isn't determined to be such. <laughs> Right, it kind of goes hand in hand. That's why we see Jesus, when he's talking about the rich young ruler, he says it's more difficult for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter heaven. He's not saying it's impossible. He's just saying it's very difficult because you have to thread this idea. And just as an aside, he's not actually talking about rich people being kept out of heaven. He's talking about godliness. He's talking about this pursuit of being a sanctified person, right? Knowing more about God. But he's saying the issue is, is those determined to be rich. Again, uh, I challenge you to find somebody who became wealthy, who wasn't determined, who didn't set that goal. Now, they do exist. Uh, one was actually in the news this week, Yvonne Chouinard, who is the founder of Patagonia. Um, he gave up his $3 billion company and said, I'd, which actually, I read his book, which is Let My People Go Surfing. And it's true, like he, he does, didn't really ever want to be wealthy. He literally was just a rock climber who figured out, I can make better equipment so that I don't fall and die. And oh, by the way, I can sell this to my friends. And the company kind of grew from there. And the whole time he's like, I just want to be a rock climber. <laughs> and so perhaps you look at somebody like that and say, okay, yeah, well, maybe. 
But when it comes down to it, it co- it's this idea of those determined that when it is your goal, when your ambition, the drive that you have is towards amassing worldly wealth, it becomes an issue. He goes on from there to challenge Timothy, right? Because Timothy, as a young man, is still in this pagan society. He challenges Timothy to be a man of God. He lists out a number of attributes. But from there, he gives a final exhortation. And he challenges the wealthy to not be haughty, but instead to be rich in giving. And all of it with the eyes towards eternity. Which leads us perfectly into our gospel reading. Luke chapter 16. Uh, The story, the parable, of the rich man and Lazarus. I say it that way because we aren't really sure. Most of the time when Jesus says a parable, it's framed as, and then Jesus told this parable. And on top of that, it's a little odd that there's a name included. He doesn't do that in any other parable. So why did he put the name Lazarus in there? We aren't sure. We aren't sure. Some speculate that perhaps he's referencing something that really happened. Perhaps he was just using an illustration of somebody that they all knew. Unknown. If it is a real story that he is telling, it certainly gives us some insight into the afterlife and eternity, some fascinating uh, mind from, from, from the mind of God himself, but, but we aren't sure. So we'll, let's just take it at, at its surface value as a parable. So it paints a picture. There's a wealthy man who has many great things. It talks about he has purple, which is the color of wealth. It talks about having linen that's a cloth that would have been of wealth. It talks about how he had all these feasts. And he's existing in this great place. And then outside of his gate is a beggar named Lazarus, which we know also Jesus knew somebody named Lazarus, who he ultimately rose from the dead. But we aren't sure if it's the same Lazarus or if this is just a coincidence. And it's interesting because it says that Lazarus, as he sits outside the gate of this man, which tells us that he's homeless, right? If he's, if he's staying outside the gate of another person, that he was yearning for even what fell from the table of the rich man. In those days, if your hands got greasy, they wouldn't use a napkin, they would have used a piece of bread and then thrown it away. And so perhaps it's a reference to that. We're reminded of the parable of the prodigal son, which just happened, by the way, in the gospel reading. It was just before this, where he yearns for the pods that he's feeding to the sheep, or excuse me, to the pigs, to the pigs. And, and so you're seeing this Lazarus who's out there, and he's covered in sores, which tells us that's probably why he isn't part of the larger society. And it says even the dogs licked his sores. He couldn't even keep the stray dogs away. This is a man who is at his lowest, outside of the gates of this rich man. Well, then it says that they died. And it almost presents it as though like, well, yeah, of course the beggar died. He was living out. But then surprisingly, the rich man died as well. Notice, by the way, what it says happens to them. It says Lazarus was carried by angels themselves to be alongside Abraham. While it then says the rich man was buried, which tells us also, again, the treatment of them in this world to be buried as a sign of respect, uh, to not be married as a sign of tremendous disrespect. It seems Lazarus wasn't even considered worthy of that. But suddenly the rich man finds himself in what's called Hades, Sheol, hell, separation from God on the understanding of the Hebrew people of those around. It's interesting, by the way, that he's aware of what's happening in paradise. And we don't necessarily see that the other way is true. It's only Abraham who's responding. But he, he sees that now Lazarus, this, this man who is at his door, that this, this great reversal has happened. 
that suddenly Lazarus is the one in paradise. Lazarus is the one who is, is well taken care of. Lazarus is the one who's comfortable while he is in the very torment that Lazarus was left in at this man's actions. And so the rich man cries out. Notice what he does. He says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to come and dip his finger. In. What is he doing to Lazarus? He's still treating him like a servant. He doesn't address Lazarus. There hasn't been a change of heart. He still doesn't see Lazarus as worthy. He's still addressing the most important person. That's what he would have done in his life. He would have said, who here has the most status? That's who I'm talking to. So he addresses Abraham, says, hey, hey, send Lazarus to dip his finger in cool water because I'm dying down here, man. And Abraham says, no, can't do that. And so then he realizes that he is lost. The rich man basically says, well, that's it for me, but, but please, I've realized that I have brothers who, who can avoid this fate. Can you send Lazarus to go to them to tell them to turn the other way? That's what repent means, to turn the other way and pursue God more, to, to not be suffering the same fate that I do. Basically, he realized it's too far gone for me, but at least they still have a chance. These people that I love, that I know. I saw one commenter who said uh, the rich man had five brothers. He actually had six. He just discounted Lazarus, who should have been considered one of his brothers, should have been part of the people in his community. And Abraham says, no, not going to do that. They have scripture. They have, they have Moses. They have the writings. They already have this. And, and the rich man responds and says, if somebody rises from the dead, then surely they'll be convinced then and we see as Jesus tells it, that Abraham then tells him if they didn't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe somebody who was risen from the dead. Keep in mind, Luke is writing this well after the resurrection of Christ. He has seen as society responded to a person who rose from the dead. He has seen as, yes, some came to know their Lord, but others were still in denial. Okay. So the question that we have as we kind of unpacked all this, what does this mean for us? How should this speak? How should these, these sections of scripture, and if you include the psalm that talks about uh, not putting your faith in the princes of this world whose plans will, will cease the day that they die, which tells you something about their plans that they were selfish in nature. What does this say to us? But I've gotta be honest, my notes end here. Because when you look at these sections of scripture, you don't need a master's degree to figure out what this is trying to say to us. You don't need some great orator, some communicator to say, well, this is what you should, you, it's pretty obvious when you look at these bits of scripture. And I think it, it talks to two different entities here, right? There are two, two different groups that can really learn from this. One is the church, especially as we look at Amos. As Amos speaks to what is essentially at the time, the church, the people of God. And he's telling them, hey, you've gotten fat and you've gotten happy and you've gotten lazy and you're just entitled. You're, you're taking everything for granted. And I think we in the church, the church specifically in America, the American church, um, we've kind of gotten fat and happy and lazy. And you can listen to all those who say that the church is under persecution and Christianity is being, per no, it's not. We're here, aren't we? We're not afraid of soldiers busting down the doors and stopping this worship. There are countries across this world where that is the case. We're free and able to worship. Now you could have a conversation about uh, morality and how this shifting concept of morality, but when it comes to, to the ability to worship, we're not being persecuted. 
In fact, the people who are in power, vast majority of them are Christian. Pretty much every president who has ever been in charge of this country has been a Christian. We're not being persecuted. We've become fat and happy. I've said before that Christianity is at its absolute worst when it is powerful. Because what happens when Christianity gets powerful is we get away from the mission. We get away from what we as Christians are supposed to be doing, how we should be living in this world. We get just even an ounce of power. We suddenly become corrupt. Just look at what the church was like when Martin Luther came along in the 1500s. They were entwined with the Roman Empire. They had this power and they were abusing it in so many ways. They were creating rules and saying, well, <laughs> you can try and check it. We didn't teach you how to read that, so good luck. But if you want to check it on us, this is what it says. Just trust us. And it was corrupting. In the modern American church, we have left behind our mission. We left behind what we should be doing and we've become complacent. And here's the reality. Study the statistics. Study all the reports. The church is dying, especially the Lutheran church. The Lutheran church is on a steady decline. If you come to the congregation meeting later today, you're going to see a graphic that should open your eyes. Because here's the reality. There is entire generations who have felt betrayed by the church. My generation, the millennials, look at the church and they don't see a place of hope. They don't see a place of love and compassion. They see a place of hate and judgment. They see a place where, where you have to look a certain way in order to be here. We've lost the mission. We've become complacent. The church has become fat and lazy. And those words of Amos should ring in our ears. There are pastors, pastors who have their private jets and they fly across the nation and they're saying, hey, if you just donate this money, then maybe your prayer will come true. They're taking the concept of giving, the concept of generosity, and they're twisting it into human greed. The church should be weary of this. The church should recognize this. The church should be fighting against this. Now, here's the thing, and I've said this before. God will still win. God will still be powerful in this world, but the church as we know it, it's dying. What we are presiding over, what we're doing right now is falling apart because we've become complacent. We should always keep our mission in mind. I've joked before that, that I can't wait to see Wales Belly Lutheran Church because that's what happens. Rather than going to Nineveh, we just set up pews inside the Wales Belly or, or 99 Sheep Lutheran Church where we say, ah, the one, they're out there somewhere. They'll come back eventually. We're fine here. We may never be complacent. May we never become fat and lazy. May we never grab hold of that power and just sit and be happy. Instead, may we always respond to God's mission. May we be generous with the blessings that God has given us. See, the world is looking for a place of hope. The world is looking for a place that they can cling on to. These young people that are out there right now, they desperately need to hear hope. They are brokenhearted. They see the pain and the suffering in this world. And rather than going to the church that's betrayed them, they're going to things like chakras. They're going to things like concepts of spirituality and new age things. They're going to crystals because they're yearning for something and we are failing. That's what this is saying about the church. What does this say to you? What does this say to us 
as individuals as we look through these readings, we look through Amos, we look through 1 Timothy, as we look through Luke, where, where Jesus tells this story of a rich man who has so many regrets in his life. It's about giving of ourselves. It's about recognizing the blessings that we have. If you live in this country, you are blessed because you're not living without the ability to turn on your faucet and have water come out that you can drink because you have a house over your head. If you live in this country, you are blessed when you look at the perspective of all the people across this world. And so with those blessings, rather than storing them up for ourselves, rather than becoming greedy, we should be giving, we should be generous. See, the issue is, um, it's like this. I love going to Tex-Mex restaurants, right? So that's why I love living here in, in Houston especially, but I've got a problem. They bring out those chips and salsa, and boy, I just go to town. I don't know what it is about Houston, by the way. Why do you guys warm up your red salsa? That's weird to me. Nobody else does that. I mean, it's good. I'm not, I'm not lying about it. It's just kind of weird. Nobody else does that. But you sit there, and you're, you're chowing down on the chips and the salsa, and you're like, this is great. I'm having the time of my life. And then the enchilada comes, and you're like, well, I don't know that I have room for that. That's what we're talking about in 1 Timothy. That's what we're talking about in Luke 16. We're filling up on chips in this world when there's something so much better yet to come. For Lazarus, he kept passing the chips to somebody else. He was ready when his meal came. My friends, may we be cautious when it comes to amassing worldly wealth. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but when that becomes our ambition, when that becomes our religion, when that becomes the thing that drives us, We've lost sight of what God put us on this planet to do. We are called to give, to help each other, to be there for one another, to find the Lazaruses in our lives. Now, I, you may say that, oh, he's just, this is a giving message. He's trying to get us to give to this church. And yeah, that would be great. We, we need that, to be completely blunt. Um, but also hear this, just give. It doesn't matter if it's here. There are countless needs across this community, across this world. There are places that need the blessings and the resources that you have. And if you don't feel comfortable giving here, give somewhere. Give of yourself. You can give financially. You can give of your time and your talents. You can give of your treasures. You can give of your passion, helping to raise awareness. You can give in so many different ways, but think outside of yourself. The world tells us and teaches us to look out for number one, to look out for ourselves, to make sure that we're taken care of. But the reality is we should be generous. We recognize the blessings that we have. Now, I promise as the lead pastor here at Christ Memorial that we will faithfully use the resources that you give to, to open those doors, to open that gate, to let in the Lazaruses of the world to help them to experience hope, to help them to experience the gospel. I promise we will do everything we can to be faithful stewards of the resources that you entrust with us. But again, just give. Trust in God. Trust in God and combine it with ambition. Don't trust in God and say, yeah, it'll be fine. Somebody else will give. God will provide. Uh, the church needs my, uh, the, uh, the, God will figure it out. Combine it with ambition, combine it with drive, and be content with what God has given you. God will care for what you need. See, that's the issue. In our society, so often, what we want is more important than what somebody else needs. And that can be true financially. That can be true in terms of relationships. 
I can't tell you how many times I have counseled uh, a soon-to-be-not-married couple, and that one of them says, well, I'm just not getting what I need, to which the answer is, are you giving what you need? Are you giving what she needs? Are you giving what he needs? Or are, you, or are your eyes wandering? Is your mind wandering? It can happen in relationships. It can happen even spiritually. So often it's, well, you know, I, I want young people in church, but I don't want any crying babies in here. They distract me. It can happen in church, but I don't want the music to be what they'll want to listen to. I don't want the way that worship should be to be what they connect with. No, no, no. It has to be on my terms. God bless the crying babies. God bless the distractions in this community if they come here. What an amazing blessing that is that we should be celebrating. We need to grow the church. We need to grow the church not so that we can have a bigger kingdom. Not so that I can have a raise or anything like that. No, far from it. No, we need to grow the church because we have a community that's brokenhearted. We have a community that's clinging to any shifting sand to try and find a sense of hope. We have a challenge. We have a challenge to live in a world that is by and large ruled by greed. And unfortunately, that greed finds its way into God's church, and it very quickly becomes man's church. And for that, we should repent. We have a challenge to live in this greedy world and to seek to change this world. We can do that by, by abundantly loving, by being overwhelmingly compassionate, by radically being generous, through those things, through the blessings that God gives us, through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, let's change the world. Amen?